Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Doctor's Kitchen. Recipes, health, lifestyle. But certainly both THC and CBD and whole plant extract cannabis seems to have what's called a brain protective or a neuroprotective effect. Potentially things like plaque formation, um, which we get in Alzheimer's, which, you know, we used to think that these plaques in Alzheimer's, you could just, just take away the plaques and the Alzheimer's will go away. But now we know this is actually an immune reaction gone wrong. So, you know, cannabis actually interacts with our immune system in our brains. So it seems that there's a lot of potential um, early on for the cannabinoids maybe to even be a part of um, a mild cognitive impairment protocol so we can actually prevent, um, potentially in some cases at least, the, the progression onto dementia. Welcome to the Doctor's Kitchen podcast. The show about food, lifestyle, medicine, and how to improve your health today. I'm Dr. Rupi, your host. I'm a medical doctor. I study nutrition and I'm a firm believer in the power of food and lifestyle as medicine. Join me and my expert guests where we discuss the multiple determinants of what allows you to lead your best life. Cannabis products. Have you seen any lately? Over the last few years, we have become completely inundated with cannabis products from across the shelves of health and wellness stores to online. And there are blogs that claim miracle cures from everything you can think of. Sleep, anxiety, cancer, autoimmune conditions, eczema, acne, libido. I'm not making this up. There are so many things out there. And as a doctor, I'm asked about this from patients a lot. But quite honestly, I've had no formal training in the products and up until now I haven't really looked at much research this is either an incredible legitimate supplement with a myriad of uses or this is modern day snake oil well today I'm speaking with Dr Danny Gordon Dr Danny is a double board certified medical doctor integrative medicine physician family medicine doctor and world leading expert in cbd and cannabis medicine she also co-founded the non-profit uk medical cannabis clinician society the mccs which trained the uk's first cannabis medicine specialists and helped set up the uk's first cannabis 
medicine centres as well. She's lectured at Imperial College, King's College and UCL on medical cannabis. She's also developed the first medical cannabis training programme for physicians in the UK and is a consultant for clinical research in cannabinoid medicine, working with top researchers around the world. She is the perfect person to be speaking to on this subject and we have a fascinating conversation that could have gone on for double the amount of time but I, I decided that we should probably wrap it up a little bit early because I, I'm, I'm sure that Dr. Danny is going to come back on the podcast to talk about more subject matters. We literally scratched the surface but today we talked about her first interaction with cannabis as a medicine and plant medicine in general, the historical use of cannabis as a plant medicine the different types of chemicals that you find in the cannabis plant and how there are a myriad of different uh, phytonutrients, the endocannabinoid system and how cannabis may exert its effects across multiple different uh, parts of the body, the risks of using it as a medicine or as a supplement, the uses of cannabis in dementia, Parkinson's and gut disorders specifically, and tips on how to use cannabis if you choose to do so as a wellness product. Now, it goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway, before trying any new products, whether it be a supplement or CBD or cannabis, it's advisable that you speak to your own doctor or healthcare professional to find out what is right for you, especially considering the official advice from multiple regulatory bodies on CBD at the time of this recording. This can only be an educational tool. This isn't an advice to take anything. And certainly if you have any diagnosis of conditions, you must speak to your own practitioner. I can't stress this enough. There are a number of different things that are exciting about the research looking at CBD as a wellness product, but there are so many unknowns as well. So I I, I can't stress this enough. You really do need to um, look into this. The other thing that I would stress is that there are two main strains of how cannabis is currently being used. One is a wellness product where you can buy things over the counter, which typically have low amounts of the the, the two uh, common chemicals that you find in cannabis, CBD and THC. Um, but there are other strains that are prescription use and we're going to be talking that about that with Dr. Atom which is who's an anaesthetist and one of the only registered prescribers of uh, cannabis in the UK so definitely listen out for that podcast as well um, but for now I'm going to let you listen to the long conversation that we have and I'm sure you're going to find this absolutely fascinating on to the pod. First of all, I'm like I'm sorry that you know you couldn't come to the kitchen and cook for you because uh, I I love cooking for the guests because you know you get to come here and we get to chat for a bit you know it's all nice and relaxed and it's um yeah it's just a nice way to start really just you know with a with a nice meal what what would I have uh, cooked for you if you wanted me oh, to cook for you man what would so right now I usually like really spicy food but right now because I'm having some heartburn because of the pregnancy probably a less spicy version of something but I I don't know I love every type of food um yeah what are your specialties I'd probably ask you for your specialty so I made um a chi- oh there's a dog in the background somewhere <laughs> uh okay. I made a um chili lime peanut uh broccoli curry the other day um bit of a mouthful but it tasted really nice you got like the savoriness and the chili uh, a bit of the heat from um this Chinese blend that I use 
and um, some sweetness uh, coming from a little bit of maple syrup and then uh, the tomatoes as well. And it's, yeah, stew that for like good half an hour and it's, yeah, it's really nice. That sounds incredible. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I'll make that for you, but maybe not with the heartburn, probably less chilly. Yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe like, yeah, when, once the baby comes, she'll go away, hopefully, so. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. Yeah. Um, okay, cool. H- how long do, are you good for time? Like for an, an yep. hour or so? I am totally, Perfect. I have nothing after this because I'm finding I'm usually so energized. I usually work until like 7.30 at night. Um, oh, really? Okay. I'm, I like, I love to work. Um, so usually my husband makes dinner and I don't have to worry about any of that stuff. And I just continue on writing. But now I'm finding like four o'clock rolls around and I'm just tired. So I didn't book anything after this. So I am, I'm good to go. Epic. Oh, yeah. that's great. Yeah. I, I, you're speaking to someone who loves to work as well, like <laughs> late. And um, I'm actually trying to get into a habit of not working after 6 p.m. Um, I'm more of a morning person rather than like a, a an evening lark. And so I, I'm much more productive. And so even though I, sometimes I work late, I, I, I'm less creative. Um, oh, I think interesting. I need to, yeah, I, I need to get that like morning energy and like yeah. start minimum like 7.30, in the morning. And then that period of time, like the first three, four hours, I get so much done. And in the evening I can spend like, like literally two or three hours doing something that should have taken me half an hour. Um, wow, I get distracted so and yeah, it's very, it's weird how we're all different, right? Exactly. Because I find when I'm writing, sometimes I'm way more creative in the afternoon, the evening. Um, But if it's other stuff, if it's really technical detail, and I have to do it in the morning, it's very, I guess it's very um, classical, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, let's carry on with the pod, and then. Yes. <laughs> so otherwise, because we could we could chat like I know, uh, about I know. Those I'm super interested in like your background and how you got into this, and um, the way I thought. And your book is incredible. I've got it in front of me here. Thank I, I, you. It really, is a bible. Honestly, I've I've been fascinated by, it. and this is going to be an education for me too because this is something. Um, I think I'm in that transition point from Canna skeptic to Canna. I think kind of believer or kind of convinced <laughs> kind of convinced okay kind of convinced kind of believer kind of works as well it does <laughs> it totally does <laughs> like a Justin Bieber fan yeah kind yeah of exactly Bieber. it's a bit evangelical um, <laughs> you know it's <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to talk about um your starting journeys so like where where you trained in medicine uh and and your first sort of interaction with cannabis as a recreational plant but also something that could have medicinal value so i trained in canada so my first i did my undergraduate degree it's a little bit different in canada because you have to do this undergraduate science degree first um and then you apply for medical school which i did at the university of western ontario near toronto canada and um, that's where i did my medical school and then i went on to do my residency which I think you guys call something different as well over here, but basically it's when you're a junior doctor and you're slogging it away in the hospital. Um, for yeah, those... we call it foundation years one and two. Yeah, and then the family medicine part of the, this family medicine specialty. So I did that at University of British Columbia, also in Canada. Um, so that was my training. And of course, none of that included uh, any cannabis knowledge or education 
um, any learning about the endocannabinoid system like everybody else I had half of a day of nutrition in about eight years of medical training like we all mm. did and I know that's something you talk about a lot as well yeah um, <laughs> so that was basically it and I was always really interested in natural medicine so I was taking a lot of different natural medicine courses kind of along my conventional medicine training um and in my family medicine specialty years, I found a mentor who was doing integrative medicine in Canada. And he did a lot of plant medicine, a lot of botanical medicine, but not really cannabis, more other herbal medicine. He did integrative cancer care. He was an MD from oh, University awesome. of Montreal. Mm. Um, and, and I studied with him. And then um, really, I you know I went on to do my integrative medicine specialty in the U.S., um, in 2012, and then um, when it became a fully board qualified specialty in 2017, I took all those specialty exams. So that was kind of my integrated medicine piece. I was doing botanical medicine. I was giving people supplements and botanicals alongside pharmacotherapy for years and years um, in my family medicine practice, but not cannabis. So cannabis for me was, I grew up in the States actually, not in Canada. And I grew up all in, right. Yeah, in um, South Carolina, so quite conservative area and you know I grew up in the war on drugs era so for me it was a it's, cannabis was this like dangerous drug and it was going to make everyone go crazy and going to make you dumb and um, I never touched it as a teenager a lot of my friends smoked cannabis recreationally as many youth do in Canada it's very common um, but I never did. I was really into sport and, and um, in my studies. So the first time I ever even tried cannabis recreationally was with my best friend. And I had about probably like, you know, a few puffs of a joint when I was in my 20s because she still couldn't believe I hadn't tried it. Um, <laughs> and she actually had an autoimmune condition and she was convinced it was helping her inflammation. But we didn't have any idea why at this point. So she's like, well, what you're into plant medicine. Why don't you just try it? And see, I mean, you should see what it's like. So we did. And it was very um, typical. We sat there and we watched Sex in the City and we laughed a lot. And we ate some potato chips. And literally, that was the first time. And it was almost really the last time for many years because I wasn't drawn to THC really at all. Um, but I was glad that I tried it. I think if you ex the more you experience in medicine, it's the same with all these plant medicines. I think it, it can give you some perspective. So that was kind of it for many years. And then it came back into my professional life because my patients were using it. Um, and because I did integrated medicine with them, they were telling me about it. They're like, doctor, I'm growing this in my backyard. Um, I think it's helping with my pain. I think it's helping with my sleep. I'm making a tincture out of it. I found this recipe online. Um, so that was really back in 2012, 13. And then I started really looking into like what's going on here. Um, and started reading a lot of the preclinical research, like a lot of the animal studies, um, Ethan Russo's early work, um, who's a very um, esteemed colleague and he's really the pioneer in this, in this area. Um, and it wasn't until a few years later till I started prescribing it because it was still really gray zone in Canada and it was really stigmatized. And um, I was helping patients find THC versus CBD balance in the strains that they were growing. But it was really limited what I could do because I didn't have a ready-made bottle from a company like we have now on the medicinal side and saying this is this much CBD, this much THC, and this is the dose. And it was really, I really call I called it with my patients cowboy medicine because we really didn't know for sure what exactly was in it. Um, 
And then when I started prescribing kind of the licensed uh, forms of it through the Health Canada program, it got uh, a lot more uh, technical and easy in some ways. Um, But still, you know, it's a plant medicine. So it's not it's not straightforward. Um, But yeah, that was basically my my journey with it. Yeah, well, it's, it's amazing and really progressive that you are using plant medicine so early in your medical career because this is something that I've only just come round to uh, later on after I, so I, I trained as a general practitioner in the same way that you did. So you're family medicine, that's what they call it in Canada and, and the US. Um, and through my own personal experience with ill health, that's when I went back to nutrition and lifestyle, all the things that we're traditionally not taught at medical school. But plant medicine for me came even later than that. So it was great that you had that introduction really early on. Yeah, I, I think it was really because of this mentor I had, because I was the same as you. I came into it from a nutrition angle first and a mind-body angle. I went through a really difficult period in medical school. I went through a harassment situation at work with a um, actually a senior colleague, and it got quite serious at one point, and I, um, it, really, it really threw me. And because of that, I really had this epiphany about mind-body medicine, and I started meditating, coming out of that because it was such a stressful experience. And um, in, in the end, my university was very supportive. I ended up getting an apology, formal apology from the department and so forth about it. Um, but at the time it was really, really stressful. And it was when I was going through my surgical rotations, um, it was the person in charge of me basically who, who this was happening with. So that was really my start was nutrition and then really getting into mind, body, medicine, yoga, meditation, that kind of side of it. Um, and then I had this mentor who was really into plant medicine and it was a whole new thing for me. I didn't really know much about it. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it's great that you had someone who could really guide you through that and who's like your senior and someone who could mentor you because it, it can be tough when you're coming up against skeptics. And I think as medics, we, with good reason, we are skeptical, but that shouldn't go into harassment. That's a terrible situation. Um, for, for those of uh, the listeners who are new to uh, cannabis as a plant or even plant medicine, you've done this beautifully in your book you've gone through the ancient history of it where it came from where it was cultivated but perhaps you could give us a snapshot of how long cannabis in its various forms has been used in ancient medicine uh, and um, you alluded to it earlier because you grew up in the area uh, in an era during the, the war on drugs um, but uh but but why it kind of fell out of fashion over the last 50 or 60 years Yeah. So when I first started to know this myself and research cannabis, I was completely shocked by this information. And I was someone who should be really open to cannabis as a medicine because I was already prescribing plant medicines and teaching my patients about things like meditation, as well as giving them, you know, normal drugs. So um, really cannabis has been used as a medication, we think as an herbal medicine for thousands of years. Certainly it was used in ancient China many thousands of years ago as a fiber for clothing, um, maybe for, for food, we don't know for sure. Some of this is kind of blurry in the, um, you know, the historical archaeological records. Um, but certainly we know that in, in India, in Ayurvedic medicine, this was really one of the power plants. This is one of the, the, the releasers of anxiety in traditional Ayurvedic medicine. And it's, it's in some of the really um, very old, um, you know, sutras or, you know, traditional, tech, traditional Indian texts. Um, so we're talking thousands of years. But of course, they didn't know about THC versus CBD 
they were using a natural form of cannabis that was probably quite low in THC at this point. Um, it probably wasn't the stuff you're seeing, you know, in the US on the recreational market, which gets you really stoned. That probably didn't exist yet. Um, and excuse me, because we have this system in our body that can use these types of plant chemicals that come from the cannabis plant as well. Um, it was a natural fit for really our bodies and, and um, as a medicine, just like other plants were too, like a lot of other uh, Indian herbs, for example, that I use, like ashwagandha is one, uh, Chinese herbs, there's so many of them. Um, but cannabis really is one of these power plants. Um, so that really continued on for really thousands of years. And really it was in kind of, even in the, the Victorian era, you know, in the 1800s, it was still thought of as a medicine. It was prescribed on pharmaceutical formularies. So, you know, it was in the, the book of drugs in the UK, even. Um, doctors. Oh, wow, were, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. So it was in the UK pharmacopoeia, the US pharmacopoeia. Um, and then there was kind of this shift at the end of the 1800s because there was other things on the list of drugs um, that you could be prescribed. And that was actually available over the counter at this point without a prescription, like um, tinctures of cocaine and, you know, poppy and <laughs> things, other things that are probably not so good for it to be people self-medicating with. So, um, you know, a lot of the academic uh, bodies got quite concerned about this and said, okay, well, we have to kind of curtail what, what these um, potentially harmful substances these powerful substances, um, how, how easily they can be accessed. And cannabis was kind of lumped in there. So the cannabis tinctures that were you were finding in these pharmacies were kind of lumped in with the, the poppy um, and the, the, the cocaine um, tinctures. So this all kind of, you know, came to a head in the U.S. and it had a lot of political motivations in kind of the 1920s um, when you had Prohibition era. And there was a lot of political and quite actually quite racist, anti-black, anti-Mexican sentiments at the time. And the cannabis plant was a bit of a scapegoat because this the cannabis plant was utilized in um in Mexican culture, um, and it was it was actually utilized as a creative tool for a lot of uh, Black Americans at the time as well. So, what happened was it kind of became it kind of acquired its own set of morals, and um, it was really pitched as this kind of demonistic um, element by the powers that be at the time, the government. The, it was supported by the media in a very anti scientific campaign against the plant. And this went on into the 1940s, and then the um, New York Academy of Science said, well, maybe we should just see scientifically if this is all true. Does it really make people go psychotic? Is it really the cause of these violent crimes? And they found that it wasn't, and it was actually quite low risk. But this report was just ignored at the time. Um, so this kind of sentiment continued really until really into the 90s, until the HIV crisis um, was you know, hitting the U.S. really hard. And in California, they decided to pass a law um, letting people with advanced stage AIDS access cannabis to help them with their, their pain and their end-of-life care. And really, up until that point, it was illegal really to even study it, um, excuse me, in, in the U.S. And um, like we do in the U.K., after the U.S. kind of demonized it back in the 60s and 70s, we took it off the formulary here too in the U.K. And then you know, then you have the UN coming into the scene in the 60s and the, you know, the Commission on um, the Narcotic Drugs Commission of the 1960s, where they said, oh, let's just lump cannabis in with cocaine and, um, and opioids and poppy and, and, and heroin, basically. Um, 
So we're coming out of all that now, but it's taken a while. And the lagging, um, you know, we see in uh, the way we think about cannabis as doctors, as scientists, as politicians, it's going to take a while for that legacy to fade. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'm I'm definitely guilty of that myself because that era of demonizing cannabis still impacts my initial thinking about it when it was first suggested that I should even be speaking about it on a podcast. And that was coming from a lot of my colleagues, but also uh, followers and, and patients as well. Like, you know, I've heard about cannabis. I really want to know about it. And I, I'm coming at this from, you know, a position of wanting to learn more because looking at some of the data and some of the research now, it's like, okay, wow, there are there is quite a bit to this complicated plant. Um, and like you've dissected as well, it's more than just uh, the THC and the CBD that is contained within the plant. It contains a number of different cannabidiols, a number of different phytonutrients that uh, I love talking about when it comes to like just generally in food and herbs and spices and stuff. Um, perhaps we could talk a little bit about just how complicated this plant is and what the potential avenues are for all these different um, uh, elements that you find in different strains of, of the plant. Yeah, it's, you know, it, as far as botanical medicines go, I use, like I said, I use herbal medicines alongside drugs. So, um, you know, I'm no stranger to them, but as far as plants go, this is still one of the most complex um, that I use. So it, it, there's just so many strains, as you've said, and different strains have different kind of ratios of these different plant chemicals. And excuse me, what happens when we put the different ratios into our bodies is our bodies can react differently to these ratios. So there's hundreds of biologically active compounds in this plant. There's the cannabinoids. So that means THC, CBD, and over a hundred others. And then there's other things like flavonoids, terpenoids, all these other big names that basically are other types of chemicals in the plant that are natural, that are in loads of other plants as well. And that all we think work together in our nervous systems, in our bodies, in our immune system, um, in this like synergistic or kind of helper fashion. Um, so, you know, when we, when I first started to speak about cannabis as a medicine, and when I first started to learn about it as a medicine, um, we didn't even really know as doctors the difference between CBD and THC. Like I would speak to doctors and they would say, well, cannabis is really bad because of the high addiction potential. And, you know, I would say, well, you know, I, I usually start with really low THC varieties and they would be like, well, what's that? Um, so we're really talking about almost hundreds of different plants. It's kind of like heirloom tomatoes, which are one of my favorite um, <laughs> vegetables. So you can have purple tomatoes, you can have green tomatoes, you can have yellow tomatoes, and they're all tomatoes, but they all taste slightly differently. They have different acidities. They all have different like plant chemicals inside of them slightly. There's just so many chemicals in this plant. So of course, everyone's probably heard about CBD, which is cannabidiol and THC which is, you know, the stuff that everyone knows about making you feel high. Although it's also really good for other things like pain and spasm and um, many other symptoms. So besides those two, which are the most two common ones, the ones that are most um, concentrated in the plant, there's many what we call minor cannabinoids. So they appear in smaller amounts. So you can't get loads of these things um, out of a single plant, generally speaking, although they are really starting to genetically modify the plant so they can really enhance some of these minor fractions. One of them is CBG, which I think is the one that besides THC and CBD, people may have heard about. 
especially because of COVID, because, you know, in the beginning of COVID, everyone was saying, let's just put CBG in everything because it's in, it's called cannabigerol. Um, the reason why is because it has some antibacterial, antimicrobial qualities. So um, some people were saying, well, maybe we should just all be taking CBG. We should just bathe in it. We should wash our hands with it. Um, and then COVID will just go away. So unfortunately, <laughs> it's not quite that simple. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it does have some antibacterial qualities, antiviral qualities, um, and they are investigating it for, for some of those properties, potentially with COVID, but really it's, it's not something if, you know, people are always asking me, should I buy a hand sanitizer with CBG? Um, the answer is no, get the ones that are 70% alcohol. If you want something that has additionally CBG just to be a bit trendy, that's fine, but, um, that's not what's going to protect you. Um. But CBG is really interesting because it does a lot of other things too. And it's what we call the mother uh, compound in the plant. So you have this basically before, um, uh, basically at the top of the, the tree, when the plant starts to make all these, um, you have something called CBGA, which is an acid form of CBG. And then it gets converted into CBG, active CBG. And then CBG goes on to make some of these other cannabinoids in the plant. So um, that's one of the ones that's been kind of, I guess, most um, got the most press besides CBD and THC. But then you have things like THCA, which is an acid form of THC. It's not very stable. So until recently, we didn't have a lot of products that you could give someone, but I've used it in a tincture, like an oil form um, in my patients in Canada as an add-on therapy, sometimes to CBD and CB and THC. Um, it has some anti-autoimmune properties, anti-inflammatory properties, um, potentially even some anti-seizure properties when combined with uh, CBD uh, at a smaller amount and some, some types of epilepsy. But there's just so much that we don't know about all of these other compounds. So a lot of what we do know is from animal studies and it's from Petri dish studies. So the human studies are still really to come with most of these things. So it's really in its infancy and a lot of it's just, um, you know, taking groups of patients and saying, what have they noticed about a certain strain? And then saying, why don't we try this and see? Um, so it's it's an educated guessing game to some extent at this point, once you get beyond a CBD and a THC ratio in a product. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I spoke to a colleague of mine who's an anesthetist and he's one of the only registered prescribers of um, CBD, THC medications uh, in the UK. And he talked about... Um, uh, the entourage effect, which you've mentioned in your book as well, about the impact of not only just those constituents of the plant, but actually, you know, the combine the combination of all the other um, chemicals that we're yet to study in as much depth. Um, do, do we have any inclination as to why it's that holistic element of the plant uh, that gives its effects? We do have some some idea, yes. So how most plant medicines work is through this entourage effect, or usually in herbal medicine, you call it synergy. Um, so for example, you know, when if someone comes to me for a sleeping problem and they do, either don't want to try something like zopaclone or benzodiazepine, or we want to try something, usually we want to try something lower risk first. Um, and we've tried the CBT for sleep, we've done all the mind-body stuff, and they still need extra help. I don't usually prescribe them a single herbal um, because it doesn't really work that well. So I won't just prescribe someone valerian root tincture or um, passion flower. I usually combine a bunch of them together 
And that seems to work a lot better because the plants work in our bodies um, together better. Now, why is that? Well, it's complicated and we don't have all the exact answers, but we do know, for example, that CBD can modulate the effect of, TB, of THC at the CB1 receptor. And we know that CBD is kind of like this um, overall kind of orchestrator of the system. It doesn't really bind to one single receptor in the endocannabinoid system. It just kind of goes all over and tweaks things. It's like the tweaker. So when you combine this with other chemicals from the plant, these are all bioactive compounds and they all potentially impact things like uh, inflammation cascades in the brain and the body. So inflammation pathways are extremely complex um, and we're, we really don't understand it all. And we even think it might impact things like um, other uh, active chemicals in the brain like serotonin, um, histamine, um, there's antihistamine effects from THC in preclinical work. So this is really interesting because I have I have patients with a lot of weird stuff in my practice, like mast um, cell instability disease and um, histamine-triggered um, mental health symptoms and all of these things that are really poorly understood. Um, and sometimes they find THC vaporized helps them. But of course, they don't want to use it all the time because it can also make them feel um, slightly intoxicated or impaired. So... I think that there's just so much to learn. Like the, the milieu in our brains are so complicated that I think if every, if someone says to me, yes, I understand exactly how it all works, I, I tend not to believe them because I don't think we're there yet. <laughs> yeah. Well, this, this is the complex thing about studying plants and plant medicine in general, right? Because we have this paradigm of um, RCTs, randomized controlled trials, being the gold standard by which we are able to demonstrate efficacy. But like you beautifully portrayed there, you, you know, if you're using a little bit of valerian, a little bit of hops, a little bit of another tincture to get the desired effect in your patient, it's very hard to um, strategically and efficaciously study that in something that can be presented in a in a journal that can you know be be um, accepted by the wider medical community. Yeah, and I think I, I think as time goes on, I've realized it is very challenging, but it is possible. Um, it's just you know how we go about doing it. I think it's just a lot, little bit of outside the box thinking, or a lot. Um, for example, if you're going to test, you know, a combined herbal medicine product, okay, well you can standardize certain fractions of that, and then you can say, okay, we're going to you know use this combination of herbs these standardizations at this fraction and we're going to give it to the same type of person. It's still not going to be as easy though as a single molecule because then you still have all those different molecules interacting. Everyone's genes are different. You know, of course, everyone now talks about epigenetics, so how the genes get turned on and turned off. And um, it, it's just more complicated. So the good news of all this is even the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, is now, they put out a paper in 2018 about what they call real-world evidence um, or real-world data. So they're now starting to even come on board, some of the big regulators, um, with this concept. And I also uh, work as an um, advisor to Professor David Nutt's group for drug science and Project 21. Um, and that's going to be the biggest real world data collection for cannabis patients ever. So we're going to, you know, aim for 20,000 patients. And even, you know, in that process where I'm always kind of, um, you know, how, saying, how can we collect data in a better way, this real world data? Um, and then how do you put that together? So it will be accepted, but I think we have to really um, rethink some of this RCT data as the 
um, the blind we have these blinders on sometimes um, with with you know that it's the only way to test something and of course even with RCTs I'm I'm also you know I, I've done I'm a published researcher as well so I know you know when you look at statistical modeling even within that narrow framework you can make things look a certain way potentially depending on how you collect that data so it's not as foolproof and straightforward and objective as people might think it is even though it's still the best we have yeah yeah absolutely I, i'm doing a, my master's in nutritional medicine at the moment um at the university of surrey and i love the exercises where we go into different groups and we analyze different papers and we realize what looks incredible from the abstract actually is uh, and i don't mean to be frivolous with the way i'm describing it but it's quite it's a lot of junk <laughs> so you know we have this sort of like pretty image of randomized controlled trials but you really have to dig deep and look um at it uh, quite literally um to actually interpret it and, and understand whether this is good or bad research um I wanted to talk about the uh, endocannabinoid system uh, and, and uh, you have this wonderful mnemonic of, of how you describe what it does. Um, and I, I wanted to talk about the endogenous endocannabinoids that we have and whether the components of the um, uh, the cannabis plant can can override that, impact it in a negatively uh, negative way or is it enhancing? Mm -hmm. It's a really, it's a really good question. It's a really complicated question. Um, so we'll try to break it down. But basically, um, the endocannabinoid system you can think of as the overall balancing system in our brains and in our bodies. What that means is it kind of, I like to say, it sits as a skin on top of some of the other systems, like our happy hormone system, serotonin, or our stress response system, and it kind of helps tweak things all over these different areas. So the mnemonic that I really like as well, and I cannot take credit for it, um, and I can't even tell you who made it up, to be honest. I wish I could. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but basically, it's um, eat, sleep, relax, protect, and forget. So what that means is that the endocannabinoid system is very much involved in everything from um, brain protection, from toxins, from trauma to um, immune regulation. So that helps preventing our immune system from getting too overexcited and causing autoimmune problems or detection of cells that should not be there anymore, like potentially precancer cells, getting rid of those. Um, has to do with inflammation. So regulating inflammation so it doesn't become uh, negative or chronic inflammation that contributes to problems in the brain and the body. Um, it helps regulate appetite, sleep, sex drive, all of these really important functions. Um, so it does a lot of stuff. And, you know, that's why people say to me a lot of times if I go give a lecture to a group of doctors who are not familiar, they say, I just don't understand how cannabis can do all these things. It, it just seems like a snake oil. Um, but then once you teach them about the endocannabinoid system, it starts to kind of make logical sense um, because we can, you know, especially CBD interacts with a lot of these different elements. So um, the other part of the question was we do have these natural endo, meaning inside of our body cannabinoids. These are chemicals that we all make naturally, just like we have an endogenous opioid system. That's why, you know, when we, we have to be very careful with opioids because they've caused a huge, massive problem with chronic pain, 
But with acute pain, they're really good. I mean, I had a terrible accident with my hand and I mean, they put me to sleep and fixed my hand and they gave me morphine after. And I was very grateful for the morphine for the first 24 hours because I had pins sticking out of my arm. Um, So we have, and the reason morphine works for us is because we have chemicals in our own brain and body that work like morphine too. So it's the same with cannabis. So, you know, do, does the cannabis plant override the system? No, because it, it sits in the in the kind of lock and key models and the receptor sites differently. That's the first thing. Um, but there is a theory that, you know, we all have what's called this base endocannabinoid tone, which means we all have this kind of like ideal ratio of how much natural cannabinoids our body and brain makes. And if it gets out of whack, just like if our hormones get out of whack and we someone has low testosterone or, you know, you have too much cortisol hanging around, then you get clinical symptoms. Um, it's the same with cannabinoids. This is a theory. It's, it's very preclinical data so far, but, um, Dr. Ethan Russo was the first person to really talk about this, um, way back in 2006. And the theory is that, you know, some people with certain conditions may have, um, a lower tone than they need to kind of balance their brain and their body. So people with IBS, chronic migraines, fibromyalgia, this might be a problem with the having, um, needing a top up or like a, some help regulating the endocannabinoid system. And the theory is that this is why plant cannabinoids seem to help these people so much when a lot of other conventional pharmaceuticals seem to really do very little for them. Um, so in, in short, it doesn't override the system. But of course, when you're talking about putting something into the system like THC, which does have risk, especially at the higher doses, especially if you don't have a lot of CBD on board to buffer it, and depending on the person, everyone responds to THC differently, um, then you know we have to be careful we don't, um, we don't overdo it. Just with any power plant, I say, like even coffee is a power plant. Um, Coca is a coffee plant, uh, is, is a power plant, and it can be cocaine or it can be used pharmaceutically to help with, um, you know, um, n- nosebleeds in the hospital. So, uh, you know, all of these power plants, um, they have a double-edged sword to them. Yeah, absolutely. And and on that note, actually, with regard to the potential issues with um, uh, components of the cannabis plant, um, you, you mentioned mental health disorders, um the potential adverse impact on fertility what are the main things that you want people to be aware of before they start even considering whether they should be asking about cannabis plants or even supplementing themselves over the counter wherever it's legal yeah it's a really good question so i think you know the the fsa has come out in the uk with recommending that if if people want to try cbd as a wellness supplement not under the care of a doctor that they should stick to 70 milligrams a day of CBD or below. Now, there's some preclinical data why that is. They've kind of taken the animal research and they've kind of put it into humans and said, well, maybe this is a safe limit. They don't really know what the safe limit is. Um, I think it's probably probably quite a bit higher than that for many people. But the thing, you know, I also don't demonize what they've done because there's this thing called the precautionary principle. So if we don't know for sure, and you're going to be giving advice to a mass population without medical advice, it's really just best to be erring on the side of caution. Um, and we've learned this again and again with medicine throughout the years. There's all kinds of things we thought were really had no um, no risk whatsoever. And I always tell people there is nothing that has no risk. Um, although yeah. CBD is very low risk for most people. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's a lot lower risk than a lot of the other over-the-counter things that people um, take too much of. 
So I think it, it's all about perspective. So I think, you know, that's the first thing. If you're, if you're taking it for wellness use, it's probably best to follow that recommendation. Um, and if you're using it for a well, for a medical issue, it's always best to see a doctor. So um, I've been working here in the UK, me- mentoring and training some of the first UK specialists in cannabis medicine. And um, I'm the vice chairman of a nonprofit that does that. And I do a lot of nonprofit work in that area because I think the more doctors who can talk to their patients about this, it's going to be safer for people. So if you're using it for a medical condition, I always recommend you see a doctor because it could, you know, potentially interact at the higher doses, even CBD with medications in some cases, not always. Um, I certainly use it with many medications together, but it's done in a more controlled fashion. Um, And the same with THC. So THC Certainly, if you have a history of certain mental health problems in your family, even in a first degree relative, or of course, if you've had a personal history of them, like mania, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, um, any kind of psychotic break, that's a really good reason to avoid THC in general. THC in certain people, a small percentage of the people who, whose brains are very um, sensitive to THC, and the THC actually binds differently in their brains that can potentially increase the risk of having um, a psychosis or a a manic episode. The question is, is this person going to be going on to have that anyways? Is it just unmasking something earlier or is it truly elevating their risk? It's still, I think the jury is still out, but again, best to be cautious. I don't prescribe THC cannabis um, for people with those histories. However, the plot thickens. So one of my, my friends and colleagues at Cambridge University is working. She's um, one of the specialists in the area of the CB1 receptor model in the brain. And she studies psychosis. She's a, she's a psychiatrist and she works with psychosis patients. And she's finding, and there's early research to support this, that people who already have schizophrenia, already have psychosis, when they use um, THC, uh, I'm not going to say recreationally because I think they are using it to medicate, but you know, from a black quote unquote black market source, they find that their medication side effects go down, that they, they stay on their medications potentially longer, ah. and um, some of some of their mood symptoms improve. So it's really really complicated. <laughs> so interesting. Yeah, 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 it's um it's a really um exciting area for cannabinoid research because psychosis is just so poorly treated. It's in terms of we have. We have lots of drugs that can really help, but those drugs have really bad side effect profiles. So um, people are really interested, and I'm really interested in this area as well, because you know when you look at CBD, CBD has an antipsychotic effect in the brain. Um, and, and some early studies have compared it to conventional antipsychotic drugs and found that it might be comparable at very high doses, but the side effect profile is amazing. So... You know, this is really one of the new exciting areas, I think, for for patients as well, to give them some hope for potentially a better treatment with less side effects, maybe even combining the two. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that that's super exciting. And it just goes to to say about how complicated the uh, impact of this medication can be on people, depending on who it is as well. Um, I wanted to talk about the the potential uses now of of uh, cannabis. You've gone through a whole bunch of different things in your in your book. Obviously, we don't have time to go through everything, but I highly recommend people read it because you talk about stress, you talk about uh, the impact on autoimmune conditions, psychiatric issues. I want to talk about a few. Um, the first is the brain, uh, and 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 largely because you've had personal experience of uh, it in your in your father, 
um, who unfortunately had uh, mild cognitive impairment and then went on to have a full-blown um, uh, dementia, I believe it was. C- can you talk about a little bit about what your experience was like then? Yeah, so when my dad was going through his illness, um, this was before I got into cannabis as a medicine, um, I had started to do integrated medicine, but it was I was still in medical school when it all kind of kicked off. Um, and it started with him having, he'd already had quite a few kind of um, potential risk factors for dementia, um, a little bit of family history, but more kind of life things that had happened to him. And then he had a really bad head injury and he was in a coma. Um, and this is when I was 13. And I remember him putting the wrong lampshades on things after he'd recovered and come out of the coma. He had was so-called normal, um, but he was never the same. And, you know, only those really close to him would notice it, I think. But as time went on um, and he got older, a lot of other things started to happen. He had a lot of other um, physical health conditions. He, they almost, um, he, he had a bowel problem and he had a burst bowel and they almost lost him on the operating table. So a lot of brain insults as well. And, you know, a lot of gut problems. He always had gut problems, constipation, and all these things that looking back as an integrated medicine doctor, you know, I really think there was a lot going on with leaky gut, leaky brain for probably many, many years. Um, So, you know, by the time he actually got diagnosed with both Lewy body dementia, and they said that he had a mixed dementia, there wasn't really a lot um, to be done. And, you know, it's always hard when you're a doctor and you see those ones close to you because you have all this advice, but, you know, it's hard to get sometimes people to take the advice early enough. And then, you know, when people have a a very kind of set in dementia, there's really not a lot you can do to reverse it. It's more about keeping them comfortable. Um, And at this point, I really wish my dad would have had cannabis as, as, as a tool because I use it in my patients with dementia and Parkinson's. And it can help with tremor in in many Parkinson's patients. It helps with sleep-wake cycle. Like my dad was up. He was was having a lot of hallucinations. So he was up all night. He would sleep during the day. His sleep-wake cycles got really reversed. And he was just in a lot of um, emotional, mental pain. I mean, he was... He used to teach math at the university. He's a very smart guy. And to have that taken away from him and to have his physical, he couldn't swallow at the end. It was just so horrible. Um, and yeah, I've used I've used cannabis medicines to help with, yeah, sleep, behavioral um, agitation, um, mood, engagement with the environment, tremor, because um, he was really Parkinsonized. He had a lot of Parkinson's features. So he was really stiff as well. So for me, I think, gosh, like I really wish that someone would have um, recommended that on his palliative care team. Um, yeah. I think that there's so many potential uses of it and just diving into some of the research that you uh, you put into the book. Um, I think we as a medical profession are getting a bit better at diagnosing mild cognitive impairment. And with um, some of the pioneering work of Dale Bredesen. I was going to say Dale um, Bredesen. Yeah. Yeah. Who's, you know, an advocate for everyone having a cognoscopy uh, around the age at which we can actually do something and try to prevent premature um, brain aging. Uh, I think, uh, you know, we're going to be a lot more forgiving and a lot more proactive about um, brain health in general. But I wanted to ask you about the potential mechanisms by which um, cannabis can have uh, an impact on a number of different ones. You mentioned in your book, 
Parkinsonian disorder, um, Alzheimer's, um, and even some other um, uh, brain disorders that, you know, I wouldn't have thought were all linked. Um, but but yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, the, the early research is really promising and exciting and it's still early. I think that's important to really be be clear about. Um, but certainly both THC and CBD and whole plant extract cannabis seems to have what's called a brain protective or a neuroprotective effect um, in many different areas of the brain. So it seems to be potentially helping with things like inflammation, potentially things like plaque formation, um, which we get in Alzheimer's, which I know you'll know this if you follow Dale is in his amazing work is, you know, we used to think that these plaques in Alzheimer's, you could just just take away the plaques and the Alzheimer's will go away. But now we know this is actually an immune reaction gone wrong. So, you know, cannabis actually interacts with our immune system in our brains. So it seems that there's a lot of potential um, early on for the cannabinoids maybe to even be a part of um, a mild cognitive impairment protocol so we can actually prevent um, potentially in some cases at least the the progression onto dementia um, and you know Dale Bredesen's work he's reversing some of those things um, we, we actually spoke at a conference together a few years ago and he was presenting some of his research and his brain imaging studies that hadn't been published yet and it was just incredible what he was doing um, with, you know, with, with his really a natural medicine protocol and functional medicine testing and all this kind of stuff. Um, and I do a lot of that with my patients too. So I think, you know, if you look at some of the animal models studies coming out, um, they give animals different types of cannabinoids and, and extracts, and they track things like um, mild cognitive impairment as they would see it in, in a rat model. And some of the changes are reversible when they start giving them cannabinoids. So, you know, of course, rats are not humans, but it's a really good start. And that's how all drug trials start. They start with the, you know, the animal model and then you move on to humans. Um, and I think even though in, in patients with um, advanced brain disorders, I don't think cannabis is going to be able to reverse those changes once they're really set in. But certainly as part of a, a brain health protocol, um, I think uh, you know, like high CBD forms of, of, you know, hemp cannabis, like CBD um, oil, potentially these types of things that are very low risk, generally speaking, um, do you have uh, some potential there for, um, for some of these brain disorders that are probably all connected um, and have endocannabinoid connections as well, dysregulation? Yeah, it's it's fascinating this this whole area of how interconnected the immune system is, inflammation is to brain health disorders. I remember watching a lecture um, where Rudolf Tanzi was talking about his research, where they uh, were able to elicit those stereotypical tangles in the brain that you see with Alzheimer's uh, patients by injecting salmonella into the brain. And you you begin to realize, okay, the, the tangles and the tau and all these things that we know are pathognomic of Alzheimer's are actually the, the body's reaction, the immune reaction causing this. So it stands to reason, and this is very preliminary, but if you have a substance that can impact the endocannabinoid system, which has an impact on dampening down the immune response, then potentially that has a preventative role. But like you said, rat studies, animal models, we still don't know yet, but it's it's really promising. And with something that has such low profile, low side effect profile, it's, it's certainly worth, you know, investing some money into some clinical research. 
you mentioned the gut there and your dad's um, uh, history of, of leaky gut or also known as intestinal uh, hyperplasia um, and the the utility of hemp-based products on, on the gut. Um, perhaps we could talk about the gut-brain axis and, and your personal experience of using uh, cannabis with patients with IBS and, and, um, and IBD. So yeah, the gut-brain axis, it's something I've been rambling on about for pretty much the past decade. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the reason why is because, yeah, the gut has its own immune system. It has its own little brain. And um, a lot of the brain chemicals that help regulate the brain are actually made in the gut, like serotonin and GABA, which is our kind of calming brain chemical and many, many others, as well as endocannabinoids. Um, so why does it help all these different gut conditions? Well, probably a number of reasons. Um, it may help with the tight junctions, making the gut less leaky, but again, really preliminary. We don't have big studies yet in humans. It's just a, it's an, it's an educated guess um, based on how those cascades work. Um, but certainly we know it has an anti-inflammatory effect on the gut. Um, people with IBS, so irritable bowel syndrome, it doesn't cure, none of these things are a cure. Um, but I do find that it's very helpful in patients with IBS. And, you know, I, I think I always say as an integrated medicine doctor, a lot of these things are kind of final common endpoint buckets like IBS. Okay. Well, what, what is it actually from? Was there an infectious trigger? Um, is the microbiome unbalanced? Is the gut leaky? What is the gut's immune response to an invader looking like? So you can, you know, there's, there's a lot of functional medicine tests that you can do that are quite fancy. But they're also quite expensive. So I start to, I tend to start with food um, and some really simple supplements. And usually CBD is one of them because, you know, in, in government medicine in Canada, you know, where you treated thousands of patients using these, these things, including cannabis, um, you can't get functional medicine tests covered. It's like the NHS. So if, if I can get them better with um, treating them with food and a few supplements and CBD, you know, like low THC medical cannabis, then they're happy and I'm happy. So we might not know exactly why it's working. It's not a cure. Um, but certainly I've used it in patients with um, uh, inflammatory bowel disease. And these were patients who were on a biologic, so quite a high-tech medication. Um, but they were still needing, these were like refractory cases. They were still needing steroids for these flares. And we all know steroids are quite bad for you when you have to use them all the time. They can cause um, diabetes. They cause sleep-wake cycle disruption. They can even cause depression. Um, and these patients have really tried everything, natural stuff, drug stuff. Um, so, you know, we added the very high CBD um, medical cannabis and they were able to come off their steroids and stay off of them. So, and so far, you know, no interactions with the biologics that they were on. So, I mean, those are massive success stories, in my opinion, because their quality of life returns and they have less side effects and it's just such a win-win situation. Um, and in the same with, uh, you know, IBS, I've seen similar, uh, you know, results, but because IBS is such a diverse bucket, you do have to kind of think yeah. what is actually causing it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it it can be quite complicated, particularly IBS, because there's psychological components, there's food components, there's interaction with a whole bunch of other conditions. You know, it's uh, it's really um it's really complicated. But but having something 
like uh, cannabis as a potential useful tool as a supplement it seems like an interesting avenue to at least um, experiment with under the direction of a practitioner who's who's experiencing this as well um we could talk about a whole bunch of things <laughs> like you talked about in your book you talk about skin you talk about sleep um uh, but I, I want to I don't want to, this to sound like a massive advert for CBD like everyone just go out and like try a supplement but I thought we could um, perhaps end with some tips uh, for, for choosing a supplement um, because one of the, the biggest um, uh, tips that I got from the book um, is the fact that the cannabis plant is a bioaccumulant in that it will leach uh, the toxins and heavy metals out of the soil uh, and store it in the plant itself, um, which I didn't know. So that stands to reason you've got to be really careful about where you get your supplement from. So I thought perhaps we could talk about some top tips when, when choosing a supplement, if you choose to do so. Yeah, absolutely. So on the wellness side, so these are things um, that you can get over the counter in the UK. So I think that's always a good place to start because that way people can know what they're seeing on the shelves and how that may apply to them. Um, so when you're choosing an over-the-counter CBD wellness product, you, the first thing is you want to make sure it has what's called a certificate of analysis. And there's a whole section, there's like a whole chapter about this in the book, but basically bottom line is this is like a, a report, a third-party lab report that says, okay, it actually has this much CBD in it, like it says on the bottle. It doesn't have any nasties. It doesn't have heavy metals. It doesn't have pesticide residues. Um, it doesn't have, you know, microbes that you don't want in there. And it doesn't have high amounts of THC um, where it shouldn't be. <laughs> so that should be um, in every batch is tested. So that should be available from the company that you choose. Um, it may not be on their website if you're buying it online, but you can ask for it via email if they don't have it. Sometimes it's just a space issue on their website. Um, but in Holland and Barrett will have COAs for all their products, like any retailer, you know, that's um, reputable. So that's the first thing. Um, the second thing is people say, okay, should I go for a full spectrum CBD or a CBD isolate product? Um, right now in the UK, we can get both. But, and of course the full spectrum product is nice because it has all, well, not all, because some of the um, other chem plant chemicals get kind of, um, kind of leached out when you process it, but it has at least some of those other plant chemicals in there. And it's that entourage effect again. So a lot of people do find it works better for them at lower doses when they have a full spectrum product um, or at least a broad spectrum, which means it still has some of those other things in it, but it doesn't have any THC. So the broad spectrum will have less than a full spectrum in it, but it will still have more than an isolate product. So CBD isolate, people say, well, does it actually work? Well, for most people, it probably does work, but you, a lot of people need a lot higher doses. And that's what we're seeing in the research studies. Most of the research studies with CBD have actually been done on CBD isolate, but they're very high dose. But they're really treating pretty hardcore clinical stuff, you know, like epilepsy and psychosis and really bad uh, general anxiety disorder. So um, there's nothing wrong with a CBD isolate as long as it's coming from you know a good supplier. Um, but certainly, um, and actually that might be the only choice we have uh, in March because of these new rules that are coming in about CBD. So basically, um, unfortunately, a lot of the really nice full spectrum products that you see on the shelf right now, it looks like they're no longer going to be legal 
in the UK. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh. So it's really thrown the industry into a huge, massive turmoil. Um, and there's been a lot of lobbying against this and the Hemp Farmers Association, um, which I support, um, they say, gosh, like, this is really going to decimate a lot of these small producers and, and artisanal producers. And it's true. Um, but that looks like it's going to be the case. So it may be that you only have that choice. And then people say, well, what else can I do? Well, you can still combine it with, you know, other herbals, other things to get that synergy effect. Um, there's probably going to be people putting terpenes back into the CBD isolate and like adding things back in to kind of, kind of make up as, as best as they can, like approximate what a full spectrum would have been. It's never going to be quite the same, but it looks like that's probably the way things are going to go in the UK. Oh, wow. Is there a particular reason why that is the case? Uh... Yes, it's very complicated, but basically... <laughs> I'm throwing loads of complicated questions at you today. I'm sorry. No, no. It's, I mean, the, the big question... Well, it's a great question. Though, like, why? Why is this happening? Um, there's something called the novel, foods, novel Food Regulation in Europe, which basically says if something hasn't had a, a traditional use, um, it's considered novel in the human diet. And then it has to be kind of regulated almost like as a almost like as a medicine it has to go through this very expensive process and um, you have to know exactly what's in it so to do this with a pure cbd isolate it's possible but to do it with a hemp extract which has all of the stuff in it not possible or very very difficult because the batch to batch um, uh, consistency is going to be a little bit different each time and the, the kind of ridiculous part about this is even some of the, the drugs that have been made from the cannabis plant, like um, Epidiolex, it still has what they, they say they're impurities, but actually it's some of the minor constituents in the plant. And they allow a very small percentage of that um, as long as they classify that as impurities. But when it comes to <laughs> the the um, the novel food regulation, it's, it's stricter. So um, it's very much a political kind of situation. Um, Rather than really, um, you know, people say, well, is it because full spectrum CBD is less safe? Well, no, as long as it's, you know, from a good source and it doesn't have any contaminants in it, it's just as safe as isolate. Um, but it, it's more to do with um, the other uh, non-science uh, reasons and the right, it's to do with regulatory um, uh, issues. Gotcha. Gotcha. Is that why um, I, I I don't keep an eye on stocks or something, but my, my, one of my friends <laughs> informed me in anticipation of this interview that uh, the shares in um, hemp uh, farms fell over the last couple of weeks. I don't know whether it's because of this or there's the other reasons as to why. That's a good question because I'm, I'm also not a trader, so I'd have to ask <laughs> someone more knowledgeable than me. But that might be one of the reasons. Um, there's also been talk in Europe about classifying CBD in general as a narcotic once again um i don't think it's going to happen i think it's just talk but there's it, it's a really uh, kind of mm, difficult time i think for the cbd industry right now there's a lot of unknowns a lot of uncertainties um so a lot of people are saying yeah maybe um i won't invest in the sector or in certain parts of the sector yeah interesting well, I should start another podcast looking at what to invest in yeah. when it comes to wellness. I'll products. have to listen to that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Danny, this has been brilliant. Honestly, I, I've learned so much uh, and I've learned so much from the book as well. And uh, we've literally just scratched the surface of, of the information. I mean, it's literally a Bible. I mean, you talk about everything from skin disorders to, you know, autoimmune conditions, the history of the cannabis plant, how to choose a good quality supplement the different administrations we haven't even talked about that you know oil versus vaporizing um but otherwise we we'll probably have to do this again or another point (laughs) (laughs) probably better when it's not over zoom so we can actually have a full full conversation and you can try some food as well i love that i'm i'm terrible cook but i love to eat so it's a match made in heaven I really, really hope you enjoyed that. Dr. Danny is brilliant. I am so enamored by her work and um, uh, I feel that we're going to have a lot more questions on the subject. So I'm sure we're going to have to chat to her again. But just to round up uh, some of the um, tips on uh, if you are going to use something like this yourself, you must, must always speak to your own practitioner about using any supplementation, particularly with cannabis, as it can have a number of different interactive effects with medications and uh, it may not be advisable for you as well. Please remember that it is a bioaccumulant, so making sure that you have a look at the certification to make sure there are no toxic um, uh, additives to it. Uh, I would suggest using a very low THC, if anything at all. Uh, remember the entourage effect, which is the combination of the different chemicals that you find in cannabis. Always start slow think about the methods of administration we didn't really talk about that today um, but uh, certainly vaping uh, and the different uh, methods of vaping uh, can can either be safe or toxic uh, particularly if you have respiratory conditions so please please be aware of that Um, always always start slow and there are a number of different law changes that come into effect that we mentioned at the end that could impact whether this is even available by the time of this recording so always check with um, uh, the the legality in your area which is different across the globe as to whether this is a product that you can legally interact with as well again this is an advice to try it this is purely for educational purposes only and i really hope you enjoyed the podcast I'm sure we're going to get loads of questions and uh, we may have to touch this subject again soon. Take care and I will see you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 